Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. And now, it's time for Inside Conan, an important Hollywood podcast. Welcome to Inside Conan, an important Hollywood podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Jesse Gaskell. And with me, as always... I'm Mike Sweeney. And with us always on our resume is that we're writers for The Conan Show. We are. Yeah, and this is a podcast where we go behind the scenes of The Conan Show, and but it's a springboard. Yeah, it's kind of really a just a pretense to get to talk to people about comedy. Uh, but yeah, we talk a lot about comedy, and we love to talk to people who have a connection with the show. And we're excited to be back. We had a little break. We were preempted by the... MLB playoffs. And now it's the World Series. Yeah, and the Dodgers are in the World Series. I'm so excited for them. Which is exciting if you're a Dodger fan or Tampa Bay. I'm assuming Tampa Bay has fans. They might. Yeah, there's got to be a small number in Some people Tampa on that, Bay. that little island or peninsula or whatever. <laughs> yeah, LA is very excited. We're back to um, fireworks every night. Yes, it's true. That's the only downside if you're a dog in la you're not happy about this dog or maybe a human being <laughs> it's hard i i'm having trouble getting into baseball this like just the lack of people in the stands yeah it, it all seems it all makes feels me, fake well it makes me feel like i'm in a simulation more than almost anything else you're watching a video game yeah it's almost like it was always fake. Exactly. Like it never meant anything. Well, it has made me question <laughs> any game I've ever enjoyed or rooted for. In general, it just seems like a world of heartbreak being a sports fan. You're most of the time going to be angry that your team isn't doing well. I've been a New York Jets fan for many, many, I don't want to say how long. <laughs> so you're angry a disproportionate amount of the time. Well, the anger dissipated like in the mid-70s. <laughs> uh, the... <laughs> So now it's just resignation. <laughs> we have a great comedian on the show today. We sure do. So funny. He's He's been on the Conan show many times. He's very big in England. Yeah. Apparently, which I think it would be difficult because they don't generally, they don't cotton to American comics. I was going to use the word cotton as well. Were you? <laughs> I Yes. And he had a very popular show, live show at uh, the Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Comedy Festival. Edinburgh. Yeah. So it's Alex Edelman. Without further ado, here is Alex. For you. We're here with Alex Edelman. Hey, Alex. Thanks for being here. 
Hi, Alex. Oh, my God. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for doing this. It's so nice. I feel like transported back to, like, the set of Conan. Yeah. When we used to make television <laughs> in a studio. I'm seeing the signed chairs of Carl Reiner hanging, and Mel Brooks hanging on the wall, <laughs> you know. That's right. We, those are backstage at the Conan show, because they both, when... Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks were on the show. Why did they sit on folding chairs? I don't even remember why. But anyway. <laughs> we're so cheap. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You're too old. You don't deserve a comfy chair. Sit in that one. And and I guess they both signed these chairs and they went up on the wall. As a fan of Conan, the guy having grown up in Brooklyn, Massachusetts, where he is from, it was... Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So did you... was I mean, is he a local celebrity? Well, he's an actual celebrity, but... <laughs> Does Brookline like to claim their native son? Yes. Uh, the funny thing is, I could have one of the most I could have one of the most successful careers I could possibly have, and I would still, behind Conan and John Hodgman, be Brookline's, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Brookline's third most popular comedian. <laughs> yes, and if you want to expand it to, uh, you know, people who aren't just comedians, I think JFK has kind of pipped us all to the post. As British people like to say, yeah. Conan, for me growing up, Conan was kind of the guy. And it was because uh, also I grew up in a pretty religious household. We didn't have a lot of television. It was The TV was for news and sports. Uh, Could you shoehorn in late night as news? <laughs> I mean, that argument never had to work on my parents. They just, uh, I was able to sneak out of bed and I'd watch, you know, I'd watch late night stuff. So it was like pretty cool that's great well so yeah so we should back up a second because you've uh you're a stand-up comic you've been on the show twice now mm -hmm. which is so great and you killed both times so was that that first time you were on was it, it there must have been a lot wrapped up in that for you because it was like i was terrified um and the other guests were anna paquin and joel McHale, and i had just finished writing on a joel McHale cbs sitcom where he was my boss for a long oh. time. And, oh, how funny. And so I showed up. Did he recognize you? Yes, because okay. it was a multi a sign. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, why are you here? And uh, I was like, uh, <laughs> that sounds like something he'd say. Yeah. And when I finished my spot and I came over to sort of like the, the couch area, Mikhail was like, where was the comedy where we were trying to get the show not canceled? <laughs> it was oh. Like, <laughs> uh, oh, man. But yeah, there was a lot. There was a lot wrapped up in JP was so nice and Conan was so nice Conan was like people say that meeting people that you admire doesn't always pan out but yeah. between Conan and Bobby or the ice hockey player I've, I've done okay you picked good heroes I guess you I have good heroes although my walls when I was a kid did have posters of both Bill Cosby and Lance Armstrong so I, I <laughs> I'd say it's a uh, par for the course but but yeah I, I really yeah there was a lot wrapped up in doing the show for the first time yeah, was that your first late night appearance? Yeah, it was. I had done some stand up on TV in, in countries that weren't the United States, and, and even maybe I had done a, a Comedy Central this or that. But yeah, doing late night, which obviously for comedians is such a big deal. I wanted to do Conan more than more than any anyone's because it, you know, maybe people listening to the podcast, I'm sure they'll know who JP Buck is, but he's the comedian booker. We've talked about JP, yeah, but he he books all the stand up acts. And out of all the stand-up bookers, I don't think even any of the bookers of the other show would deny that JP is sort of the most respected and ingrained and beloved in, in our in, in sort of the comedy community. He is a keen eye and he's been doing it for a long time. So as much as it means to do a late night set, the stamp of approval from JP 
means a, a lot to comedians. So, so getting that from, from JP was, was really, really nice. Yeah. I was so nervous and I never get nervous before sets. And, and Gary Goldman, who's a comedian, has been on Conan a bunch and a buddy of mine. Yeah, he's been on this podcast as well. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I need to listen to that. He has a joke that he sometimes says before he goes on TV. He'll look at the guy who's about to pull back the curtain and he'll go, can you get me out of this? And <laughs> Which is so funny. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And I'll tell Gary about it. And I said to whoever's about to, I said, can you get me out of this? And he scrambled for his like mic. And I was like, no, no, no. It's just... <laughs> and he's like, great, great. You're very, very funny. You're yeah. on. It was like, uh... This guy's ripping off Gary Goldman. He hasn't even done on you. <laughs> Yeah, we talked to people before about that feeling right before they open the curtain. It just seems so scary. It's also, you know, this is not an original thing to say. I've heard a bunch of comics say this and a bunch of people who are not comics say this, but the best moments of your life, a lot of them, butterflies happen right before that. Right. So sometimes when I get butterflies now, I'm like, oh man, something cool's about to happen. <laughs> Or, or you're going to have diarrhea. Or I have the flu. Yeah. <laughs> or this girl is about to say, no, I don't want to go out with you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. But, well, that could change your life, too. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a really cool thing. Yeah. It was special. And, and there, there are a lot of great comics. And you got to eat that green room food. You know what? You said, you know what the thing is? The popcorn. I love the popcorn. I'd be afraid to eat it right before going on the TV show. That comic was great, but why are his fingers a bright shade of orange? <laughs> it's so funny because I was listening back to my first set for something a while ago. And I didn't realize just this. another human voice. Yeah. I was just like, man, it's something familiar, please. Right, right. But uh, in the first set, I mentioned that I, I'm, I'm a Jew who's never had bacon. And someone from the audience yells, kol hakavod, which means good for you in Hebrew. Oh, wow. And I didn't register it when I watched it back for the first time. Then I was like, wait, did somebody... Yeah, you thought you were just getting heckled. <laughs> but I was. I heard it and thought, do I address it? And looking back, I'm so glad I did it. Oh, sort yeah. of derailed everything. But this per someone yelled, kol hakavod, and you can hear it so clearly on the tape. Really? So clearly. Oh, wow, that's wild. Do you think that they were really giving you props or were they being sarcastic? I think they were being a bit sarcastic, but also like letting me know that there was someone there who knew what that meant. And looking back, it's a wildly selfish thing to do to a comedian during their late, for his late night set. Oh my God, yes. But I'm so glad I didn't do it. Oh. It was Joel McHale, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I read that you you studied at a yeshiva in Jerusalem. Yeah. And you were doing stand-up. Did you start doing comedy in Jerusalem? Or had you started in, I'm guessing, Boston and then continued your comedic studies in the Holy City as well? I mean, I started in Boston. Yeah. Yeah, you were like 16, right? You were... Yeah, I was... So terrible. I was, I would rollerblade to the open bikes and stuff, but I was so. No. <laughs> I was so bad. That's how you I, outrun the bullies. <laughs> Outskate out them. Yeah. They're on motorcycles, and I'm just like, <laughs> get Edelman. <laughs> I would rollerblade to these, to these open mics, and there are a bunch of comics who weren't yet good, and um, I was the worst of them. I was truly bad. But when I was in Israel, yeah, I kind of I kind of fell into it because there were like six English speaking comedians in the whole country. And so all of a sudden I was like headlining with my material that would bomb at open mics. Oh, that's great. <laughs> 
they're going to get a huge influx of comedians coming in now. They're like, yeah. It was so bad. I was so bad. How did you guys get started? Wait a second. That's yeah, not how this nice works. try. <laughs> They'll turn the tables. I want to know. I want to know. I mean, like, Mike, you've probably been writing for the show for, you know, I was probably watching your your stuff when I was a kid. But... No, you might not have been born yet. <laughs> the show, 89 years. I was a trial lawyer for three years, but I wanted to be doing stand-up the whole time, but I was living at home, and then I moved out, and then I started doing, I was a lawyer during the day and did stand open mics at night, and then I did stand-up for nine years in New York City, and then I got hired to do the warm-up during the day at Conan, and then I got hired to be a writer there. And that was in 95. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's about a year before I started watching the show. And honestly, I was six. Wait, six that how, you wow. were, how old were you? I was seven when I started watching the show. I love it. I swear, <laughs> our biggest fan base is eight to ten-year-olds. <laughs> it was great. Should I watch SpongeBob or Conan? <laughs> I could make an argument that the coolest people are those who, for whom that Venn diagram has overlap. Right, right, right. I wanted to be in sports when I was a kid. I got a job working for the Red Sox when I was, like, pretty young. Oh, wow. I wrote their kids' newsletter. I was obsessed with what? it. What? Yeah, it was so fun. Oh, that's adorable. Who runs it now? Do you ever do you ever drop into the office just to <laughs> see what the, how the teens are handling it these or days? Or write in a letter. <laughs> I don't know if the editorial directive of the kids' newsletter has changed now. Maybe they're just like wildly political or something like that. But <laughs> but yeah, Israel was really cool. And I mean, I wanted to be a rabbi. I was like, I, I thought like, I'll go to Israel, I'll become a rabbi, and then I'll, I'll come home and I'll start sort of either divinity school or something like that. I'll be like a smart rabbi like a cool rabbi that wears jeans like yeah <laughs> i'll be a rabbi but i won't have a beard guys like i'll be a rabbi but like my yarmulke will be small and like ride a bike to work <laughs> yeah so alex because you grew up orthodox walk me through this because are you not still or are you sort of a version i say that i'm modern orthodox okay and i i classify that but i also when i went on conan and said i was modern orthodox i got emails and even a phone call from someone who said that I didn't have the right to call myself modern orthodox because I didn't wear a yarmulke on Conan. Oh. Mm. And I thought a lot about wearing a yarmulke the second time I did Conan. And I, th I, I think a lot about wearing yarmulkes whenever I do TV. And I've always chickened out because I, I'm not quite sure why. In my private life, sometimes I do wear a yarmulke. And this is maybe a little bit deep for the podcast. But I stopped wearing a yarmulke when I was 18 because I didn't want the first thing that people thought about me to be like, oh, that guy's the Jew. And I regret that a little bit sometimes because, you know, maybe if I was being totally um, honest with myself and, and comfortable, I would wear the yarmulke all the time. But, um, but yeah, I'm modern orthodox is how I refine myself. I keep a kosher home. I, you know, oh, wow. I occasionally eat food that is not kosher, but I've never had like pork or shellfish. And so like, it's a really weird, distinctive part of my life. And so much of my identity is centered around like being a Jew and being a specific kind of Jew. And I make a lot of stuff that is like, you know, for Jews and a lot of Jewish causes are like close, you know, close to my heart. And so like, it's a very, it's, it's so, it's so earnest. I feel so earnest talking about it. Like, just my identity. No, this is great. It was weird to go on TV and say that I'm a specific kind of Jew and then hear from some Jews going, it was cool to see this kind, you know, someone who defines himself as modern Orthodox on TV. I'm modern Orthodox. Yeah, I would think that. Yeah. Yeah, to, to talk about it. 
right out of the gate. You know, I hate saying this, but I never saw modern Orthodox people on TV growing up. If I saw a Jewish person on TV, they're always immediately identifiable as a Jew. There's an episode of The West Wing where Toby talks, uh, Richard Schiff's character talks a lot about being Jewish. And I remember when I saw that, just feeling like really seized up by that. Um, and sometimes Seinfeld would allude to it. It wasn't a religious, it was like a more... Of a punchline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or just sort of like, you know, vaguely glossing over the mainstream holidays and stuff, but nothing... Yeah, there were never, there were never, like, Jewish comedy was, um, it, it was weird. Like, it was pretty much Mel Brooks, and also, like, sticky old Catskill-type right. comedy doesn't really resonate with me. Like, I'm much more, like, I was kind of raised on, like, Conan and Letterman and and Albert Brooks type stuff. So like, right. you know, it wasn't really. It's a very it's a very weird um, narrow target. So I was psyched to do it, but it was also like it made me sad when people were like, "You're not a real Jew. You don't wear the yarmulke like me." And I was like, "Well, right." It's a long, complicated conversation, you know. Well, there's always going to be a competition from people that are like, "You got to be more." of whatever it is you are. Right, right. Like, you're not enough until you do this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have a quick question. There are so many stand-up comics who work at Conan, which is, like, really, yeah. really lovely. Is that is it standard for, I feel like, more than the average late-night show, and not just comics, like, Laurie Kilmartin and, and, and Brian Kiley and you, Mike, like, you're all, like, good, experienced comics. It's not like comics who are like, ah, I used to, I was on the HBO Young Comedian special in 1983, and then I got <laughs> tired of traveling. That's my last credit. Yeah. But, like, it's, it's interesting, no? Yeah, most of the uh, writers do still do stand-up, like yeah. Andre Dubachet and Dan Cronin, and Jose Arroyo does it, and Todd Levin does it uh, sometimes, and... Uh, Mm-hmm. Pretty much everyone except me. <laughs> yeah. Jesse. Well, we didn't you have to tell us your story. Oh Jesse. My true Hollywood story. Which is ironic because that was my first job in showbiz. Really? Was working at the E True Hollywood story. Yes. Was that a dream of yours since you were <laughs> no. <laughs> someday? It was the only job I could get. Ha. I attempted to do stand up for about a year, but that wasn't what got me the job at Conan. I would say I came, I guess, through the improv sketch route. I took classes and did shows at UCB and IO and also wrote and performed in a web series with some friends. Oh, wow. And then I just started getting TV jobs and I started as a PA on a TV show, The Eat Your Hollywood Story. And then I actually ended up working on The Soup with Joel McHale. Did you work at Brad and Boyd? I did, but not on that, not on The Soup. I worked on a different show. There were two writers on the first show that I worked on, that Joel Mc, uh, this Joel McHale show. It was called The Great Indoors. He had these two writers and they were so funny that everything they pitched would always get a laugh. To the extent that if they pitched a joke and it wound up in the script, I always had a million alts ready for it because they were so funny that they could make any joke work. And I was always like, everything they're pitching is so funny because they're so funny. So I don't even know that talented comedy actors can, can pull it off. But yeah, he's so great. Yeah, they're great. They show run a lot of, I don't know, pilots. I worked on one for VH1, I think, and one for E! with them. And yeah, they do a lot of stuff with Joel. They're really funny. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? The legends are true. Overwhelming power. sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Donald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. You joke about having a twin brother, but he's not your twin. But he's not my twin, and I was doing a joke. I looked that up on Snopes. Growing up, me and my brother AJ looked exactly alike. Exactly. And my parents oftentimes would just, you know, we walk in the room and they go, Alex, do this. And AJ would go, I'm AJ. You know, it's the other way around. But um, (laughs) people... I was doing a joke about how people would come up to me and say, are you guys twins? And I said, no, uh, he's two, I'm two years older than him. And they go, but you guys look alike. So are you like identical twins? Like, are you that kind of twin? And I'm like, yes, that's, you know, my mom was a neighbor for two years. Like that was the, it, it was the bit and the bit wasn't really funny. It didn't really work. And I put it away. <laughs> and then a couple years later, AJ became a bodybuilder. And I thought oh, of that wow. old joke. And I said, we, we used to look like twins. Now we look like a before and after photo. And then one day <laughs> I slipped up on, on twins and I said, we're twins. And then I corrected myself. And that correction was so much funnier than the joke that I had had. And I told a friend and he was like, yeah, screw it. Comedy's a pack of lies anyway. And so, <laughs> and so I lied, but I felt bad because after I said it on Conan, I got a bunch of people who reached out to be like, I'm a twin also. Uh, thank you for your twin representation. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But you're not enough of a twin, Alex. No. How dare you go on there without your twin brother? <laughs> so, it's so funny. In COVID, it's like, it's so hard to write material because so much of my comedy is about like experience and stuff like that. And there's not, I'm kind of out of story. So I am legitimately like, you know, I have a girlfriend, which is wonderful. Congratulations. I know. I'm so, (laughs) this is a joke, but it's also true. Um, I call her Mazda because for the first six months she had zero interest. 
And I think it's a very like funny, I know it's very, very sticky, but I will occasionally go Mazda and she'll be like, that's not funny. But, um, but she is interested now. She is interested now. It was like, we were starting when a couple of days before COVID and then COVID happened and I got back. I was in the UK on tour when this all started melting down. Oh, oh. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, we could jump to it now, just that Let's do it. you have a big following in the UK. Like you had a show on the BBC there, a radio show. and Yeah. Yeah, did that start with the Edinburgh Fringe Festival? So yeah, so I was in 2014. I graduated college and things weren't super working out because of stuff like that initial twin joke. <laughs> I was still finding my feet as a comic. It took like a really long, like all kidding aside, I'm not being like modest. Like it took a really long time for me to like get good at comedy. It took a really long time for me to like find my find my voice. And yeah, it's supposed to take a long time. It takes a long time. I mean, I mean, you're being matter of fact, don't you think? For most comics. It takes a long time. Yeah, but I think I was uncommonly bad for uncommonly long. But, you know, I also started young. Right. And I, I didn't take it seriously till after college. And I had a lot of stuff that I thought, you know, I don't like when comics go, eh, this is the only thing I can do. I'm like, right. you know that's It's not true. It's one of the most versatile jobs on the planet. Like, you know, you could do pretty much anything. Yeah. Right. Help me move. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, so... I actually felt like the tacky thing is I had something to say, which is about I saw a bunch of people who were my age feeling really frustrated about their prospects. So I wrote a solo show called Millennial before the word was really like a thing. And my like my agent in England was like, you can't call a show that no one knows what it means. And I was like, well, I'll make it like a 45 minute explanation, hour long explanation of what millennial is. And so I did that and it was sort of the right time because the word was just starting to fl flourish through a little bit. And so things kind of got a little bit better because of that show, it won an award and I got an agent and, um, and yeah, I kept it and I dated a woman in the UK for like four years. And so I was going there a lot and I do a show about young people for the BBC called Peer Group. And it's very like hard to do a, a, a show now, but I miss the UK. This is the longest I've gone in many years without going there, you know, I, it, it's the second home for me. And it's a really savvy comedy place. Like people really understand Conan is the, I would say the only late night host that has significant, you know, significant audience there, even though Corden is British. I think people's comedy tastes there are just kind of alternative. And it's really like, yeah, there's a reason he left. <laughs> Did you have a learning curve as a stand-up performing there? Because I think it's it's tricky a little bit, or maybe you didn't experience that at all. That what's always worked for me as a comic is sort of planting my flag uh, in a specific in how I feel about being a certain thing and drilling down on that. How I feel about being Jewish, or how I feel about being a young person, or how I feel about being from Boston, or how I feel about being an American, or how I feel about being an American who loves to travel and and be other places. And so I think no matter where you are, those things actually do become important. And the audience encountering like a really complicated, not complicated, but complex identity works anywhere. So in Australia, I am a 20-something-year-old Jewish person from America interrogating what that means. And in England, I'm the same thing. And in England, it's actually even like a little bit more special because to them, you know, a, a young Jewish American who is curious about what it means to be young Jewish American is actually kind of an oddity. 
Right. You know, my last show, well, the one that I was touring when the world ended and I hope to tour when it stops is I went, I went to a meeting of white nationalists in New York right. and I sat there for like an hour. And then eventually someone's like, Hey, you're like a Jew, right? <laughs> That's terrifying. Yeah. But I mean, it was like right now to talk about what it, white, white nationalism means. Like it's interesting over there, but it's interesting. Like people are curious about it was, it was a trippy experience. It was in like Long Island city. How many people are at that meeting when someone turned on you? There were 12 men and five women. So there's 17 people, 16, 17 people. Wow. And no one turned on me. It's just like, well, one guy was like, you're Jewish. And I'm like, yes, I'm Jewish. And the whole meeting was like, record scratch. We're going to take a little break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's genuinely what happened. People started yelling and the guy running the meeting was like, okay, we're going to take a break. Oh, wow. And like anyone who needs to go can go. And uh, uh, I was uh, like, I think he means me, you know, uh, like, uh, I was like, Hey, I think we should talk about this. And they were like, you're leaving. Like that's, that's what's happening. Oh, wow. But yeah, I mean like that is all about identity. That show. I was going to ask you about, you were working in a room on a new show that, that just came out on Netflix. Oh yeah. The, the uh, teenage bounty hunters. Yeah. Teenage bounty hunters. So yeah. was that all done prior to. The lockdown. It was done in 2019, but I did a I did a Passover Seder that had a writer's room. Oh, okay. This is, sounds silly, but you know the Jewish ceremonial meal of Passover Seder. We, of course, me and this guy Benj Pasek, who wrote La La Land and Dear Evan Hansen and The Greatest Showman, like a great musical theater guy. Me and him and a bunch of right. we made this um, online Passover Seder with like. Bette Midler and Josh Groban and Jason Alexander hosted it. And it was like a musical comedy Passover Seder. And we raised like three and a half million dollars for COVID relief. Wow. It was like a bunch of sketches and songs. And it was fun to have a writer's room. Yeah. And even so, it was still like, I mean, I missed the like, people break for lunch and someone's like, hey, this might be nothing, but X, Y, Z, you know. Like, right, right, right. Someone's over farting on the bean bag. <laughs> yes. That's great. There's the writer who doesn't clean up their cereal bowl. It's always me. We've been having writers Zoom meetings too. And I, Jesse, agree or disagree. I feel like none of us really want the meeting to end because they're very, everyone's laughing and having a great time. And it's kind of like, oh, don't go, don't go yet. Yeah, yeah. Don't send me back into the void. A hundred percent. Like it's the only thing I have to schedule into my day. Yeah. So it also helps me know what, even whether it's morning or afternoon. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> There's some great writers' rooms anecdotes. My favorite one is uh, some guy got hired on a show in the early 2000s who was like legit in his 70s, and he had a, a a box of index cards that he had written his jokes on that he'd been carrying this box of index cards around for like years, and that was his that was his thing. Is his act, his life, his livelihood was in this box of index oh cards. Oh my god! And so they're stuck in this moment in the room. And this guy flips open his box of index cards, and he was he was never pitching anything good, but he was a friend of a sh of the guy who was the boss or something like that. And he flips open the box of index cards, and the and the writers are puzzling, and they're sat there with their like hands on their chins, trying to think of the thing. And he pulls out an index card, and he looks around the room, and he goes, "Can the floor be wet?" <laughs> <laughs> and just like he was like, "I have a joke here, but it only works 
<laughs> if someone slips on a wet floor, you know, oh, like boy. it's just such a funny, wow. just desperate thing. And oh, I, that's yeah. so great. And Stick I, with me on this. I think about that all the all the time. Just like, yeah. you know, when you're in a desperate spot, sometimes, yes, like yeah. I'm just like, well, can one of the characters have red hair? And they make <laughs> right, right, right. Because <laughs> then I've got ten minutes of material. On yeah. redheads. <laughs> They're all in space. <laughs> The great thing is, like, if you've been in a writer's room a long time and some people, you know, are kind of trying to shoehorn something in that they've had for a long time, you know, and it's yeah, like, yeah. uh, it's not something from their act. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that you learn when you're on your first job is to not repitch. Right. But like sometimes, but I, I remember someone told me that and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But. Right, 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 right. You know. There's one or two things that you really love. So I always like wrote them down and saved them for later. Yeah. And also something you learn on multicams is that people get sick of jokes by the third time they've heard them. So if a joke is in the original draft, it won't make it to the end. So never pitch a joke like that will wind up in the original draft. Oh, God. That's brilliant. Although that sounds really hard. So you have to... You save your better jokes for later drafts. That seems... So counterintuitive. It is counterintuitive. And I would always, you know, when you're a staff writer, which is for people listening, the lowest rung on the totem pole. Right. You know, you learn to be judicious and and, and talk when, you know, and, and talk when is appropriate and pitch when is appropriate. So I was always like very, you know, like if I had a joke that I really loved, if I really wanted to bring in, but like, so my showrunner was really smart. And, so, and sometimes he'd see me like someone would pitch a joke and it would get a laugh and he'd see me or the, one of these other guys write something down and he was like, Hey, uh, what are you writing? Why are you writing something down? Do you, uh, you don't believe in that joke so much that you're already prepping an alt. And I'm like, no, Sam, I'm just like, and he's like, why won't that joke work? And it would be like, and then you were like, can the floor be wet? <laughs> can one of the characters have, uh, have glasses and everyone calls them four eyes, but you know, <laughs> Well, Alex, this is a good segue. We always like to ask our guests at the end um, if you have a piece of advice for someone who's starting their comedy journey. I think having really high standards for yourself and for what you like is really important because the funny thing is that most people who go for a certain thing in comedy, craft-wise, wind up hitting it. You know, if you aim for an airtight seven minutes of stand-up, you will eventually get to the airtight seven minutes of stand-up. But if you aim for an hour of stand-up, or if you aim for stand-up that is really surprising and, you know, sort of lets easy jokes go by the wayside and focuses on being, like, really original and unusual and kind of stands out, I think it will always, always benefit you. So I, I think that even if it takes you a while to get there, and even if you're kind of dying on stage, people who really know comedy can always see someone who has high standards and is going for that high standard and them trying to hit it and they'll always respect it. So I always encourage people who are, because when you're a comic, especially in COVID, younger comics reach out and go, oh, hey, you know, can I pick your brain about stand-up? And I'm always like... And you're like, I don't have an excuse anymore. I'm not too busy. <laughs> yeah. And Birbiglia, Mike Birbiglia and I run jokes a lot. And he's actually a really frustrating guy to run jokes with sometimes because his, his standards are so high. You know, I'll pitch him a joke that I thought is like, great. I'm like, this is done. And he'll be like, yeah, but it's the first, you know, the setup was funny and you haven't really built on anything. So can you find like the second or third joke down? 
And all the great comics have really high standards. So, like, I think that's what it is. Just have really, my advice, as pretentious as it sounds, is to, like, be a snob for yourself. And, like, it doesn't mean to look down on stuff that you think you're better than, but, like, try to really achieve something with your comedy. And the likelihood is that you'll get there. Well, and on a similar note, I mean, I think when I'm writing, a lot of times it's easy to be like, all right, I got something on the page. I'm done. But inevitably, if you go back and you do a second, third, fourth, fifth, eighth draft it's going to keep getting better every time so 100 percent. don't just leave it there being like well i finished technically so i'm done right assignment is ready to hand in yes exactly it's like the funny thing is that i think the great great comics are comics who are just really good editors comedy is i think like genuinely like 75 percent of comedy is is getting, is making the thing and showing up. But the extra 25% is really holding yourself to like a high standard and going out there and making sure your jokes are really unusual. When I did Conan the second time, I had to decide between two jokes and JP was really great. And here's why JP Buck is a really talented, like comedy booker is because he picked the joke that frankly isn't as like, I think the two jokes are equally funny, but one joke was just a little bit more unique and weird than the other one. And honestly, you know, it's the joke that most people, most people come up to me and talk to me about. It's the, was that the Neil Armstrong? It's the Coco the Gorilla one. Ah, it's, oh yeah. It's that, a really, about Robin Williams. Yeah. yeah but it's a weird, great. it's a weird joke. You know what? I, I'm sure we got to end, but the one, I have one regret from that, which is that I made the cue card guy write out all the sign language and I didn't get those cue cards. Like someone, like they got lost oh, somewhere. Oh, yeah, because uh, because I in the you joke. Just come back the next day and look through our recycling. Uh, right. I tried, I tried, but they and the poor cue card guy. I was like, because I made him write the sign language in the joke, and I made him right. write, I made him draw the hands and the motions oh, the hands do. Oh my god! Do. Oh, that's so, wild. So he was like, I've never had to do this before, where it's just like, yeah, cue cards look like various, you know, things. Well, I, I kind of want those now, too. <laughs> well, Alex, thank you so much. Guys, thanks for having me. Really good to meet you. Yeah. And good luck out there. Just stay safe. And that was Alex Edelman. Thanks, Alex. Very funny guy. And guess what? It's time for a voicemail. We have a fan question. Yay! Or a question. <laughs> Here it is. Hi, this is Dave from Indianapolis. I imagine that sometimes a great joke or bit gets pitched, but everyone agrees it's not quite right for the show. Maybe it's not silly enough or too political, etc. What happens to those? Do they get trying to bent into shape to, to better fit the show? Or do they get discarded onto a big pile of unused jokes? Or do they get handed off to someone to retweet or or maybe to Lori Kilmartin to use on the road. Just curious. And Jesse and Mike, I love you guys. Thank you so much for all your work and this great podcast. Oh my gosh, that was so nice. That was lovely. Thank you very much. That was a great question too. Yes, that is a good question. I think the answer is yes to all of those <laughs> possibilities as to what happens to bits. Well, first of all, yeah, that this is a frequent occurrence that there's something... That's really funny, but for some reason doesn't work for the show. And it might just not be the right tone, or maybe we just can't, we can't execute it in the time frame. Or it's filthy. Yeah. Or it's too dirty. That's a good point, too. Yeah. Sometimes 
there's an idea you know that's so topical but we're doing the show in two hours and it's like ah yeah there's no time to to pull this off you know or it's like it's gonna cost 10 million dollars and it's just not, <laughs> exactly. not realistic yes yeah i mean i i think that all of us do some kind of writing on the side as well. So I have been known to recycle things before. I mean, there's such a volume of discarded material that there's just like a landfill of it. Yeah, we've mentioned this before, but like, what, 10%, if you're lucky, of what gets written makes Actually it on the show. Actually makes it on the show, Yes. And the rest gets put in recycling bins. And then only a small percentage of that is actually recyclable. So mm -hmm. the rest of it just becomes trash. No, but I mean, we will often write something like for McSweeney's or for The New Yorker, if you're Mike Sweeney. Uh, or for... <laughs> that was on their web. That oh, okay. doesn't really oh, count. Oh, okay. Just, just yeah, the, the Daily Show. Or for a personal pilot or a tweet or a stand-up routine. Right. So there are lots of places that those can go back in out into the ecosystem. And also sometimes we'll write, you know, something that's too political. And by that, I mean, it's it's kind of comes down too strongly once where the other. Yeah, it's too pro fascism. Right, exactly. We had a bit on late night that I loved that I thought allowed us to do jokes that we called heavy handed. And it was actually, uh, I think it was Andrew Weinberg, this one of our really funny writers came up. It was like the Conan would do a joke that was over the top political that we don't normally do. And then it would cut to the audience and it, it, it said, this joke was brought to you by Nakamura heavy hands. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> Andrew Weinberg had giant steel hands that he was clapping together. Every time we did a heavy handed political joke, you can have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. Exactly. You'd cut to, we'd comment on how heavy handed it was. And at the time I was just like, oh, this is great. We can, now we can do all these jokes that have been getting cut because they're too heavy handed. We, we've got this safety net with these heavy hands. Yeah. But Conan was like, you know, after we did it twice, he's like, okay. We, <laughs> I see what you're we doing. We get it. This is we a loophole. It. Well, you also used to do another joke bucket. Uh, the spring cleaning? Yes, that was bits that pre-taped bits that got cut from late night because they were just, they just didn't go over well in rehearsal. Didn't make the show, yeah. We talked Conan. Because, <laughs> you know, we were doing five shows a day and it's just like, I mean, five shows a week. You just have to fill these slots. We're like, oh, come on. We have all this stuff that the writers, that we all love. Can't, why don't we just say, okay. We don't know why this got made, but here it is, and show them all in one piece. Yeah, and it protects Conan from having to, you know, endorse it. Exactly. <laughs> but, and I think those are great, because then he can also make fun of the bit. It was win-win. Totally. But yeah, well, that was a great question. I feel like he was in our writer's room, because he knew exactly what happens. Yeah. The call's coming from inside the room. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Uh, well, that's our show for the week. That's our show. And hey, if anyone else wants to leave us a voicemail, please call us at 323-209-5303. Or email us at insideconanpod at gmail.com. So we'll see you all next week. That's how we end the show. We like you. 
Inside Conan, an important Hollywood podcast, is hosted by Mike Sweeney and me, Jesse Gaskell. Produced by Jen Samples. Engineered and mixed by Will Becton. Supervising producers are Kevin Bartelt and Aaron Blayart. Executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco. And Colin Anderson and Chris Bannon at Earwolf. Thanks to Jimmy Vivino for our theme music and interstitials. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And of course, please subscribe and tell a friend to listen to Inside Conan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever platform you like best. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili wickdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wicknuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go i participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last